Thank you very much, Doug. Welcome again, everyone. Thank you for participating, uh, joining us. We have some very distinguished panelists today, and we hope that this will be a good panel for everyone to learn about active things that they can do to develop their career. While all three of our panelists today work at law firms, I think we'll get to know them a little bit better today and realize that indeed they have very unique backgrounds, different backgrounds, and different goals in mind when it comes to their career development. And so with that, I will introduce our first panelist. Uh, so introduction, um, Payal Salzberg. Hi, um, thank you, Jonathan. Um, my name's Payal. I am about 12 years out of law school. I'm a partner in a small law firm here in Boston. Before I got to this firm, I was in big law for seven years. So over time, what business and career development means has changed. And I'm um, happy to be here and talk to you about that. Awesome. And then we're also joined by Kathleen O'Toole. Meet myself. Hi, um, I'm Kate O'Toole and I work at Con Kavanaugh in Boston, which is about a firm, about 40 lawyers or so. Um, I also, this is the third firm I've worked at. So I'm, and I do primarily employment law. So looking forward to talking with everyone today. And finally, but not least, we are also joined by Ashley Tan. Hey everyone, I'm Ashley. Um, I work at Prince Lobel. I am a, I want to say maybe second year. Um, I graduated in 2015, so I was at a nonprofit for three years before uh, my current gig. Yeah. Awesome. And with that, why don't we start with you, Ashley, if you can give us a little bit of background of perhaps actions that you took to develop your legal skills, given that you did start at a nonprofit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, Let's see. So I graduated 2015. Um, and so that was like five years ago. Um, I am originally from California. So I think one thing I had to do, and probably similar to John, was we had to convince folks here that we do want to stay. Um, and so uh, I've always had a pretty clear vision of what I want to do with my legal career. Um, I've always done stuff related to real estate. Uh, that's what I studied in undergrad. And so right after I graduated, I actually went to the land court, which does only real estate work. Uh, I was there, worked for a judge, and then uh, went to a nonprofit uh, that did housing work and some real estate. Uh, but I knew it wasn't what I wanted to do long-term, it was definitely more residential work. Uh, and I wanted to do more like commercial real estate zoning, which is what I do now. And um, I guess your question is what active steps did I take, is that correct? Yeah, because as you know, just noted, it wasn't exactly what you wanted to do, the mm -hmm. kind of work you were at the nonprofit. Right. So was there any particular step that you took that would have helped, that helped your transition to where you are now and perhaps continue to brush up on skills? Yeah. So I guess one, uh, I think what was very helpful obviously is that I was at the land court for a little bit. And so the folks I met there, um, I, in term, I guess, I don't know about the rest of the panelists, but I think real estate in Boston is pretty small. And so, um, so yeah, it was helpful to have people know me, recognize my face at least, recognize my name. And that was, that made it, I think, very helpful and I was trying to uh, pivot to a new position. Um, the other thing was because I, for the, you know, for almost three years, I was, I was doing um, work that was pretty narrow in scope and I wanted to make sure I didn't forget all of those other skills I have. Um, I did pretty actively take a lot of CLEs, which I know people often are like, you know, whatever, but it was helpful when I, yeah, it was helpful to at least be very familiar with the lingo, not forget about my skills. And then when I started at the firm, it definitely allowed me to just immediately jump in. Um, so that's like one thing I recommend. It was also good. I think it's different now in person, now that a lot of, you know, CLEs are online or events are online, but previously there are a lot in person. So you get to at least meet people, meet the speakers, meet other attendees, um, which is helpful, so. Once we get back to normal, I recommend that. And I guess I would open this up as well to Pyle as, and as well as Kate, if there was anything particularly that you may have done 
that help um, either broaden or narrow and focus, hone your skills in the practice that you do? Sure. I mean, uh, my practice is, uh, you know, mixed between commercial litigation and white collar criminal defense. And um, for the first five years of working, I was only doing commercial litigation. And so as a junior associate, you know, my, my only goal was to really become good at research and writing, because that's, in, you know, in big law, that's kind of what you end up doing. And also in little law or mid-sized law, that's really what they're relying on you for, is to really good research and writing skills. So for the first couple of years, that's what I focused on, not the most exciting of things. And, you know, um, but that's kind of the reality of it. And then I didn't actually get to white collar work until I was well into my seventh or eighth year. So that was a little bit late to the game. Um, and so that was a much uh, steeper learning curve for me. And so part of, uh, you know, un un part of um, developing your skills uh, in a particular area is to learn how that area works. So in white collar world, for example, it's all about relationships and who you know. Right, it's about relationships in the, with the government, whether it's the AG's office or whether it's the U.S. Attorney's office, relationships with other um, law firms that are in the same area. Other, so that's kind of what the skills were to develop that kind of relationship and getting to know people and getting having people know you. Uh, less about actually drafting, researching, and you know strategizing. So, um, what you do to develop your skills and talents will be, um, you know, driven by what area you're in. You guys are so impressive. I really mean that because I, I want to just I'll tell you a little bit about my path and how I ended up where I am. It's kind of a backwards answer to your question, Jonathan. But um, I went to I was one of those people who went to law school when I was I took one year off between college and law school. And I went to law school mostly because I took this amazing class my senior year of college about the Supreme Court. And I was like, oh, I want to be a lawyer, you know, and I didn't know any lawyers really. Um, I worked at the Mass Bar Association actually for my first year after college it, it, in like a marketing role. I was an English major in college. And in that role, I actually got to meet a lot of lawyers and learned a little bit more about what it meant to be a lawyer. But I did not have a clear idea at all when I went to law school, really what I wanted to be doing. Um, I mean, I knew so little about I never, you know, how the law worked. I, I, I just, I think I was sort of a naive 22 or 23 year old. Um, so in a lot of ways, I feel kind of fortunate to end, end up where I did. I think I had kind of a meandering path, but I, I think there are others out there that are like me too, that maybe started off interested in law school, obviously, but maybe didn't know exactly where they would end up. So um, I, I was actually a night student at Suffolk um, and I worked at a couple different jobs while I was in law school, but the last job I worked at was a very small firm that did primarily personal injury work, um, workers comp cases, things like that. We had a lot of cases and I ended up staying there for a couple of years after I finished law school. And that was actually a really great place to get my feet wet and like I got to take depositions right away and, um, you know, talk with clients all the time and had really close relationships with the partners that I work with. It was great. Um, and it gave me kind of a good broad based sense of litigation and just kind of basic skills. And then from there, I sort of was able to start directing my career where I wanted to go. So I ended up then moving to a little bit larger firm uh, with about 35 lawyers. Uh, I was there for about a year before the firm actually totally shut down after like 50 years of being in existence. And then I ended up at the place I am now, uh, Con Kavanaugh, which I, I've been there for almost six years. And so, so I never went to law school thinking, oh, I want to maybe do like personal injury law. And then, you know, I never would have thought I end up, I would have ended up in employment law, but um, that's once I got to Con Kavanaugh, I especially, I really started focusing my practice in that area. Um, the second firm where I was, it was called Looney and Grossman. I don't know if anyone on the call knows this. Oh, Kyle's shaking your head. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's where I was for about a year in between. Um, and that also was kind of a broad trial firm. There was all types of work um, that was done there. But I, I started to really focus on employment law in part because, um, you know, I just, one of the partners who I was assigned to work with did a lot of that work. So I just started to really like it. And then I was brought over to <clears throat> Con Kavanaugh because they had a need for more help in the employment arena. And, you know, I forged a really great relationship with a partner there who I work with a lot. And then my career just started going in that direction. So um, 
this, you know, I just want to assure people, I guess, out there that if they don't have sort of a, a pre, you know, a, a path that they're really sure about when they have, you know, young lawyers, that's okay. And I think it takes some time to figure out what you really like. And now I'm really, you know, it's a really good practice fit for me and it's been great, but I, I think I very easily could have ended up in another practice area, depending on the relationships that I made at the firms that I've worked at. So sorry for the long answer, but I just wanted to give and it I wanted to just jump in on that, um, Katie, because it's so important, you know, to, there are people definitely, you know, in law school and out of law school who know exactly why they're there and what they want to do. And then there's the rest of us, right? So I didn't get to law school until I was 27. I did four and a half years of a PhD and then realized, oh crap, I don't want to do this um, and switch. So some of us are the type that, you know, we're, our lives and our careers are constantly evolving. And um, the great thing about this um, profession is that you can constantly reinvent yourself. So, you know, when I went into white collar uh, criminal defense, I was seven years out. I mean, it's unheard of to like change your practice in seven years, but you know, you can't do that if you're really interested, but you have to lay the groundwork and the foundation really well. And, you know, Katie, you did that really well with your relationship with a partner. And then that way, you know, you had somebody to push you through in that area if you were interested in. And so um, definitely agree with Katie. If you want to do some particular area, or even if you don't want to do it, right? If you don't want to do an area, you can get you get out of it. Like I got out of patent litigation five years into uh, you know my career because I just realized I didn't like it, and so I wanted to do something else. Um, so long as you've got a core set of skills, and for example, you know litigation skills are litigation skills regardless of what area of litigation you're in. So long as you've got a good core set of skills in that area, you can switch subspecialties anytime you want. Um, and the more senior you get, you know, the more easy it is in a way to do that. So I'm curious if Payal or uh, Kate, if you can talk a little bit more about when you wanted to do this for, I guess, Payal, more of a pivot and for Kate, more of a focus, was there, a, was it just, on one hand, there's on actions you take on your end to really lay that groundwork. And then of course, there's the existing relationships you have at the firm. Could you talk about perhaps at the firm side, what you may have had to do, maybe it was talking to partners, maybe it was just flat out um, moving departments or, and as well as perhaps uh, any skill, uh, actions you had to take outside of the firm. Katie, do you wanna go? Yeah, yeah sure. So for me, I, I was brought into the, I was brought in as a lateral person, like a fourth year or so associate. And I knew that my focus going in, that they need, had a need in the employment area. I do other work at the firm as well. I do some insurance coverage work and other just litigation um, cases, uh, types of different stuff. But I, so I had a little bit of a, uh, a sort of a, a, an, an advantage there because I knew I was kind of going into that focus area, but I did make it known once I really, you know, was doing the work and I thought, you know, I really enjoy this. I really like the people I'm working with on these cases. I really like the clients. I did, I went out of my way to make it known to, um, to the partners um, that I worked with that I was interested in this work. So, you know, if there was another partner that had, you know, a wage claim case or they had a discrimination case, I would, you know, want it, want them to think of me first. Um, and I think I, I did that just by, you know, not being shy at the firm, making relationships. I think building relationships is so, so important. And that's another thing that, you know, I, I don't think I, I really appreciated how important that was um, as a young lawyer and as, you know, in college. And, and now I really realize for both business development and for practice development and developing your skills, I think, you know, having relationships with other lawyers and mentor relationships is really critical. So I think that was one thing, just really trying to make that known to people. And then I also did, you know, CLEs. Um, you know, I would, I would make sure that I was up to date on employment topics. Um, at our firm, we actually have practice group meetings um, you know, once a month or once every other month. So I would try to, you know, make valuable contributions in those meetings about employment. So just, just kind of planting the seed. Cause sometimes I think it's hard if you're an associate at a firm, you just get cases assigned to you. And they're like, oh, this case came in and you're doing this. And so you don't have control over it. So I guess, you know, my advice would be to control what you can control, you know? Yeah. yeah and, um, you know, all that is like very helpful to know, to do. Um, 
on the internal side of it, for me, um, given that I switched practice areas, you know, as a seventh, eighth year, um, I was kind of thrown into it because that just happens to be the firm that I ended up in. Um, and so it's like, oh, this is interesting. And for the first year or so, it was hard to uh, have an external visibility in this practice area. So I made sure, at least for the partner that I was working with in this area, hey, every time you go to an event, of course, this is pre-COVID, go to an event, get me to meet somebody in the same practice area that you work with. And, you know, actually, like you said, like real estate litigation is small. You, every time there's a big case, you'll see the same 10, 15 firms, same 10, 15 partners come up repeatedly in the same sphere, right? So the same way in the white collar world is you'll see the same names repeatedly coming up. So I said, all right, so these are the names. I made a list of about 20 names that ultimately I would want to meet, right? And have them meet me. And I said, every time, so the partner that I work with here is Mark Smith. And I said, every time we go to an event, get me to meet one of these people. Once I met them the first time through him, the next event, I went and, you know, said, hey, you know, um, Joe Savage, nice to meet you. And, you know, remember me, blah, blah, blah. And so every time I met a new person, I made sure that they identified me by face and by name. And so that's really, really good to do. Um, again, it's, it's difficult to do as a first year, second year, because I'll be honest, you know, senior partners in a big law firm really don't care to know you at that point. You know, their work is with a partner that you work with. But this is like, it's laying the groundwork very slow. It took me a couple of years just to keep doing this repeatedly and it's painful because you don't see any result at the end of it, right? Um, but you keep doing this, you keep doing this. And now like after this is my fourth year at this firm, I'm starting now to see those people send me work, right? Hey, you know, I know Pyle at this firm, so let's send her some work because we need another lawyer on this case. So it's difficult. Uh, Ashley said that, Katie said that it's difficult to like go out and have people start knowing you, but it's, it's, it's not, it's, you know, it's, what do you call it? It's a marathon, not a sprint. So yeah. stick with it. That was, yeah, I was just going to say one more thing to add to that, which made me, you made me think of it. Um, writing articles and too, I think is a way to get your name out there and also just get people to associate, like I want people to associate me with employment work, right? So, um, and, and this is a little bit probably harder to do early on, but I think, you know, we, we have a firm blog and we have, you know, mm -hmm. posts about employment topics. So there's no reason why a first, second, third year associate, if that's your interest area, you could, you couldn't volunteer to do that. Or the BBA and the MBA are always looking for article submissions. I mean, that's a great way to get your name out there and just start to build your you know, your list of publications on your bio. So um, over the years, then suddenly, you know, if there's a certain area you're interested in, you'll have like a nice little portfolio of work for people to, to reference. Yeah. I like the um, vol volunteering for work because I think people always, <laughs> people won't say no to, to yeah. you volunteering. <laughs> so when take, uh, when taking all this into account, Pyle, I, I guess we'll take your uh, instance because you are now a partner, congratulations, um, at your firm. Did you have a similar amount of steps you had to take to get to that level of partnership or was it just similar kinds of, uh, similar kinds of, I guess you could say, a hustle that you had to uh, apply? So I, th I think the significant difference when you get to the point of, you know, you're at the precipice of making senior counsel a partner is how you quantify your work changes a lot. So as a junior associate, mid-level associate, my work was quantified by how many hours I built, right? I mean, when it comes down to it, that's what it is. Um, how profitable are you to the firm and how good you are at doing that, whether it's by efficiency, whether it's by client relationships. Um, once you get to the point of maybe, you know, becoming senior counsel a partner, that changes into how much marketing are you doing? Do you have a business development plan? Um, how well are you known in the community of practitioners that you're in, right? And so I had to, in the last couple of years, really step up my marketing. So I have done, like at this point, I'm doing one of these types of webinars every single month. Every single month I do one, whether it's on the topic or not, right? It's just getting my name out. And now um, the people who potentially will send me business I'm at the top of the list because every time I do a webinar, I post about it in LinkedIn, our marketing firm sends out a little blurb, you know, Pyle speaking on this uh, um, seminar or has, like Katie said that, 
um, you know, you can write about it. So like mass lawyers, uh, no, the MBA e-journal is a very easy writing task, right? It's only 500 words on a topic and it's all electronic. Um, and they're very good about taking submissions from people because they're always looking for content. So at that phase in your career, when you're thinking about changing from associate into the, you know, the partner world, your, your, your work is going to shift and the billable hours are important, but not as important as the non-billable time you'll spend in networking and marketing and business development. And I guess to build off that, and we had a question from the audience, um, because oftentimes when you're at the firm, it is, you know, a lot of it is gonna be driven by the kind of work that you're being provided. So could you, uh, could any of the panelists speak to the balance that you have to keep in mind when it comes to perhaps a more general practice versus becoming so super niche, granted more marketable, as we've been talking about, where it's now suddenly you're the go-to person for real estate when it comes to specifically building, you know, 7-Elevens or something very, very niche. And talking about, like, could you guys talk about the, uh, the balance that you, have, that you have had to face or keep in mind? Part of it is what do you want to do, right? It's, uh, again, and what do you want to do and how much can you control? So again, as a junior associate, you're not going to be able to control what field you're going to become an expert in, right? It's fine to be an expert in general commercial litigation without having anything narrower than that, because in all likelihood, you're not going to end up in your career where you are as a you know, junior associate. You're going to make jumps, whether it's to other firms, whether it's in-house, whether it's government, there's going to be jumps. So I think it's a good idea very early on in your career not to focus or pigeonhole yourself too much because unless you're going to be in that group for the rest of your career, which is unlikely, it's better to develop like a broader practice area. Once you get to like the fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh year level, that's when people actually looking to you for expertise beyond the legal research and writing or beyond the small going to court arguing motions to compel, they're actually coming to you for your expert in a particular area. That's when it's a little bit safer to kind of start narrowing your practice area. However, it, does, it doesn't mean that you don't do the kinds of cases that come up. So even now, even though my practice area is white collar and uh, you know business litigation, I do get employment cases. And the fact is that I'll take them. Hey, you know, if it's an interesting case and the clients have money to pay, sure, I'll take it as long as, you know, I've got the bandwidth for it. So I don't think by narrowing your practice area, you necessarily exclude everything else, but it is good to start developing at some point halfway, you know, through your associate career, some kind of focus so that you can start developing and marketing yourself like Katie has been doing, you know, that she's an employment litigator. And so that's what she does but she has all the other skills that if something else comes up, she can help you on that. Uh, Ashley, I don't know whether, you know, you've had the same experience in your yeah. real estate world. I, I agree. I feel like if I were to do things again, I wish I would have been broader or tried to, or I, I guess um, more proactively ask for work outside of my own, what I'm doing now. Um, Cause yeah, it's like good to know <laughs> a lot of other stuff. I don't know much about litigation. Um, yeah, so definitely agree. <laughs> I think, yeah, the crossover between litigation and transactional. That's right. That's a hard, hard one. <laughs> yeah. It's a much harder thing to do yeah. unless you're at a small firm. Like, you know, like I've got, we've got six, seven attorneys here. And so I can jump in. And, you know, there's always, there's always the saying, and I'm not sure I necessarily agree with it 100% is if you're a litigator, you're a better transactional drafter because you know what are the problems that typically come up in litigation, right? I'm not sure I necessarily believe that in the big things like the M&A context, I don't know. But if it's like, for example, like an employment, uh, you know, drafting an NDA, a non-disclosure agreement or drafting a non-compete agreement, as a litigator, I know where the pitfalls will be in litigation. So when I'm drafting those or smaller vendor agreements type of things, um, I know to look out for those, but I think, I mean, Ashley, you're absolutely right. It's harder to swap between complete transaction and complete litigation. It just, but within the fields, you know, if you can, uh, within the practices, if you can start developing skills in more than just one area, that's definitely, you know, good to have in your pocket. Yeah, I, I would, I think everything Pyle said is, is right on. I mean, I, I think 
And I like what you said even earlier about I can speak really more to litigation. I can't really speak that to trans to the transactional side, but for litigation, if you build up the skills to be a litigator, you can basically litigate anything. And I think that's actually one of the fun things about litigation is, you know, you learn about like weird businesses or weird products as you, you know, you suddenly you become an expert. I had a case involving a, a girl who fell off a ski lift. So suddenly I was like learning everything there is to know about ski lifts. Right. So it's, um, but you can transfer those skills anywhere. And I think, you know, all of us will be practicing hopefully for like 40 years. So the world might be different in 30 years and we may not want to be a niche, um, you know, I mean, like cybersecurity is a completely new field that didn't even exist 20 years ago. So I think having kind of a balance of making sure you're really developing the core skills you need as a lawyer with, you know, finding your focus area. And I almost think the focus area is more for marketing, really, for client marketing, so that you're not just out there saying, I can do lawyer things. You know, you're saying, <laughs> this is a thing that I've done before and you should trust me to, to handle. So um, because I think it's overwhelming for the lay person looking for a lawyer, they, they're going to be looking for someone that's got some expertise, but yeah. And Kathleen, there's a question actually that can build off what you just talked about in terms of being, if, as long as you're a good litigator, you can like pretty much uh, handle whatever comes your way. Would that be also true? I don't know if you've had any experience with colleagues that folks who come from uh, as a former prosecutor that wants to suddenly go into the more of the civil litigation, would you have any particular advice in that realm? I don't have a criminal background at all, but I do actually, one of my, one of my good friends, one of my colleagues uh, was a prosecutor and is now on the civil side. And he's got a really interesting mix of, of different cases he handles because, well, he's been able to, to use his criminal skills and prosecutorial skills and develop a civil practice, but he's also, he still does some criminal defense work. Um, probably Pyle's a better person to answer that because she does the, some criminal stuff. Um, yeah, the white yeah. Yeah, I mean, and the white collar translates beautifully, um, whether it's stateside criminal or I mean, prosecutor or it's federal side prosecutor. And I will tell you this, if you spent a few years uh, being a prosecutor or a public defender in the criminal side, your next step, if you go to a civil litigation firm, they're looking for you for that experience that you have, right? They're, they're typically not going to take a DA. Again, this is typical. Obviously, there's exceptions. They're not going to take a prosecutor and then shove them into real estate litigation. That's not, they're not, you're not interested to them for that reason, right? So um, you can go from government uh, prosecutor or public defender or, um, you know, any other investigative kind of work into a law firm civil litigation setting, but you probably also will be doing some kind of, whether it's white collar or whether it's um, criminal defense, if that's what the firm does, in all likelihood, you're gonna be using those skills both for civil and criminal work. Okay. And then when it, when it comes to just any of your practices, um, how would you say is a good way to continue to develop your, um, your network? because that does link a lot to your practices. Uh, when it Because uh, Payal, you talked about earlier, uh, having the, the people who are already basically cemented in that practice help introduce you. You have a list of folks you want to talk to. Um, is that also true for clients then? Or would you say that's a little different when it comes to talking and meeting with clients? Well, for clients, you, you can talk up the wazoo and they're not going to care unless you actually work on their cases and you then become... Um, you know, again, again, depending on whether you are in a big firm or a mid-sized firm or a small firm, your interaction with the client may not be the same in each place. If you're a first or second year um, associate in a big law firm, you probably are not, I mean, your client at that point is a partner, right? You have to impress the partner. You have to make sure that that partner keeps feeding you work. Um, in a small firm like mine, um, we don't have big giant teams, groups of people working on the same case. So first year, second year associate, won't be picking up the phone and talking to the client. Um, depending on where you are, you will have to kind of navigate your, how you build a relationship with a client, but it's harder to do, um, you know, go to a partner and say, hey, introduce me to this client. Well, I have no reason to do that unless there's a case that you're on, right? Because in reality, why would I want to introduce, let's say, it's, let's say, you know, I have a big client, let's say Walmart is my client, right? Um, just from a perspective of long-term, I want to keep that client with myself. Mm. So if I start introducing everybody, Tom, Dick and Harry to them, it's like, well, maybe if they, you know, I, I don't want to risk my business with Walmart to um, 
introduce you to them if you're a competitor for me, right? So that, that's a little bit harder to do once you get to a senior point. But the best way you can make relationships with clients is to actually work on the case and where possible, be in the room when the client communications are happening. So that at some point, again, may not be in the first month, two months, but maybe a year into the case, the client will come to you directly to ask you because A, they know you and B, you're probably cheaper rate than the partner, right? So they'll just come to you naturally. Uh, can I jump into, I, I am gonna, I'm just thinking about sort of client development to sort of from more external. Um, you know, I think um, it, people who are new lawyers may not think that they're in a great position to develop clients yet because they're new lawyers. But I think um, sort of how Kyle talked about earlier, sort of planting seeds. I think all of us can use our networks from college you know, our, you know, where places where we live, our neighborhoods, um, our families, um, other, you know, I have networks of people that I still talk to from past jobs that I've had. So I think as you start to be, you know, develop your practice, just don't hesitate to make it known to people that, you know, you're a lawyer. So people, people will start to think of you and call you for questions. And even if it's not your practice area, you can refer them to somebody else. I think referral relationships are really important. Those are all things that you can start to build, you know, pretty early in your career, um, even if you don't have a focus area yet. So, and I think, you know, my mindset has always been like, you know, the goal if you stay in private practice is to build up your own clients. You know, that's that's ultimately in order to get where you want to be in your career. Um, because if you have your own book of business and your own clients, then you can. You, you have a lot more power, whether in your firm or you can open your own firm or go to other places. So I think for me, I've always been sort of thinking about that in the background. Um, so I think, you know, it never hurts to start thinking about those things early in your career. Um, the one thing that you reminded me, Katie, when you're talking about referrals, um, a good task to do when you, you know, once you're two, three, four years out is to have a Excel spreadsheet of the various focus areas of law, right? So there's real estate transactional, there's real estate litigation, there's employment uh, management side, employee side, so make an Excel spreadsheet. And then at some point, you know, cause I'll, I wouldn't do this in the first couple of years because careers change so much. Somewhere in your fourth or fifth year, you're gonna start seeing your friends are starting to solidify in certain practice areas and put them on your referral list. So that now if your client calls you, and says, hey, I have this issue with a um, with a, a um, employee of mine. I don't do that, but I know Katie does. So I'm gonna pick up the call and say, hey, you know, hey, Katie, I have this case, blah, 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 do you want it? Or I might say, hey, client, I don't do this, but my good friend Katie does it. And then Katie will, you know, will be like, oh, Pyle sent me a matter. So next time, if something comes up in the white collar world, she'll say, you know what, Pyle is on my list for white collar defenders. So I'm going to send that to her. This is how you start building up your relationship. It's not just, you know, going to meetings and saying hello and having lunches together. It's actually making the effort to send work to them. Now, it doesn't always mean that everything I sent to Katie, that person is going to hire Katie, right? But out of every 10 things that I hopefully sent to her, maybe one will get hired. But I've built up that goodwill with Katie now that she knows that I'm her go-to person for employment, you know, defense kind of thing. So start you know charting out at least early on in your career as to what these various practice areas are and get to know people that will be in future referrals for you to go to right and then you start building up your relationship within the community that way mm -hmm. and then i don't know if ash or Kathleen, you want to build off that if there's anything particular when it comes to marketing yourself generally whether it's to clients whether it's to partners at your firm or even in not, uh, or just generally in the community, is there any particular steps that you would suggest or have taken yourselves as well to market yourself? How would you perhaps set yourself apart in a positive way uh, compared to other associates at your firm? Um, so I think I'm probably more junior on this panel, but um, I think one thing, so I'm at a mid-size, I think we have sort of kind of like halfway between a small and a large so I, on some it, it really depends on the partners some you know keep their client contacts very amongst themselves and others will cc on everything <laughs> and, then, and so for the ones where i am included and do have 
a good amount of client contact. I just make sure my emails are accurate and um, and has good grammar. <laughs> like, I think a lot of people I work with, you know, like they're often, or yeah, just make sure the emails are concise. It gets what the client needs to do. And then I think they appreciate that. And, you know, I think it looks good for myself and the rest of my team. And um, yeah, that also goes to being available. Um, I know it's a big discussion during COVID, like how available do you want to be? Because <laughs> everyone is constantly available. But um, yeah, I think being available, I found the most um, contact, contact and uh, probably the most helpful I've been on my team was when people are on vacation and they have, and so I, you know, then I become that point person and um, just making sure during that time that, you know, I maintain the relationships well. Um, I think it's like, <laughs> yeah, what I try to make sure I can do. Yeah. One thing I would also recommend is when you are working, um, you know, on a matter and the, you know, you, you have an opportunity to have an engagement with the client, whether you're sending an email or whether you're you know, having a phone call with them and the relationship partner is not on the call or the email, clear that with the relationship partner first because you know, what you do reflects on their relationship with the client. So if the client says, hey, can I have a quick call with you on this uh, you know, version six of this document? Um, it, the, obviously the partner wants you to do that because you've been drafting this document back and forth, but just make sure ahead of time before you take that call or set up the call, you talk to the partner and say, hey, you know, um, David from XYZ wants to have a call, quick call about this. Do you want to be on that call? Or is it okay if I take it? Just always clear that because that way the partner knows that you respect that relationship and that you respect, you should respect their um, expertise on this issue. And more importantly, you know, you, you want to make sure that you are not um, putting this relationship in jeopardy based on what you do, because right? you are a representative of your of the partner who is the client relationship partner. So you got to be a little bit careful about how you handle that relationship if the partner is actually not on the call with you. And then Kathleen, I don't know if you had anything you wanted to add um, regarding just how to perhaps market yourself within the firm amongst perhaps uh, other associates who might also be interested in the same area? Um, I don't know, not much more to add. I, I just, you know, as I said earlier, I do think, you know, my success at my firm, I would credit not only to the partners who I've worked with, but also the associates. So I think getting to know your fellow associates, what kind of work they like to do, what their interests are, um, just helps you to be well positioned, I think, in the firm. And I think shows that you're interested in the, the firm at, at large and, you know, don't, don't, don't sit in your office. All, well, now everyone's sitting at home. <laughs> it's actually, it's a, probably a terrible comment, but you know, just, I, I think, um, don't be afraid to, to make, to, to reach out to people, to build those relationships. And actually that's probably especially true now. Um, if you find yourself that you're just not really talking to people during the day or sitting behind your computer, I think you should reach out to people at your firm, your peers, your mentors, and make sure you're staying in touch with them so they know you're engaged. Okay. And I guess to build off what Ashley just talked about, or I mentioned uh, earlier, we are at a phase now with COVID where we oftentimes are not really sure how often to be on call, whether it's being uh, the work-life balance <clears throat> or just um, how much work to keep asking for because there will always be puns of work. With that in mind, um, I guess I'll start with you, Pyle, because I know you had started at the big firm, but then eventually chose to go to a smaller firm, whether it's uh, for whatever various reasons. Uh, could you talk about perhaps the work-life balance decisions that you, uh, that you had to contemplate uh, when making that choice? Yeah, and um, I will say when you are in big loss, something has to happen in your life for you to want to change that. Whether you, you, know, you just got married or uh, you had a child, now you need to like, devote your time to things like that, or Maybe you moved or maybe you just are burnt out, which is a significant problem that happens when you're in uh, big law. It's just you're burnt out and you want to do something different. So um, I made that switch at um, seven years out. Uh, that's about as long as I could last. But the, you know, the reality of making that switch is um, while my billable hour requirements literally cut in half, 
um, my paycheck also cut in half, right? So in fact, more than half. So are, are you able to do that? Can you, you know, does your lifestyle, do you, ha do you have a family to support? Do you have kids in private school that need to, um, you know, have that tuition paid? Those kind of things are questions you need to think about before you make a big jump like that for work-life balance. So, um, you know, in terms of big law, I know that they, are, they have made a lot of advances in terms of trying to get associates to, you know, embrace the, you know, work-life balance idea. I don't know how much practically it actually works, um, but in terms of a scale, you are going to have more of a work-life balance if you're in a smaller firm, mid-sized firm than you will in big law, because, you know, you're getting paid a lot of money, a lot of money in big law. So they expect you to put that time in because they're paying you a lot of money. And, and I don't mean the law firm, I mean the clients. The clients are paying, you know, I don't know, a six, $700 an hour for you. So they want you to be at their beck and call. And can you blame them? If I was paying somebody six, $700 an hour, I would want them to be there at my beck and call too. But in a small law firm, um, you know, the rates are lower. Most people are, you know, they, they understand that you have a life outside of this because they're not paying you for your, you know, every minute of your day. So there is a work-life balance in small firms, mid firms, and maybe even big firms once you get to a senior level, but it comes at a cost, right? And whether it's a salary, whether it's you're now gonna can't live in the city and you live have, have to live out in the burbs, maybe that's what it is, but then you'll spend more time with your kids. You'll spend more time with your family. Uh, that, you know, that's a very personal decision to make and the factors will be very different based on what you have going on in your life. Um, but I, I don't think from a practice standpoint, there's, at least for me, there wasn't very much of a, you know, should I go to a small firm because I have a work-life balance and what does that work part of a work-life balance look like? That wasn't much of a factor for me. It was what else was going on in my life and whether I could support, um, you know, the step down in salary. Um, and, you know, I'm super happy I did it. You know, salary may have gone down 50%, but my life and enjoyment of it has gone up like 200%. I mean, I can do so many things more now, you know, um, that I couldn't do because I just didn't have the time for it. And, you know, sometimes it's just like, eh, I just want to do it. So I'm going to do it. Right. I don't have to worry about meeting a certain like a inflated billable hour, you know, requirement because that's, you know, that's what I'm going to be evaluated on. So there's a lot that goes into it. Um, I'm lucky enough that I don't have to support somebody. So, you know, kids put some kids through school or anything else. So those things I don't have to think about, but there are plenty of people who do have to think about that. So, and it's a very serious thing to think about. It's not just about you, it's about, you know, other people that are depending on you. So um, when you get to that point in your life, you know, there's a lot of things to think about before you can make the jump. Um, Jonathan, I'm sorry. The, your question was just kind of about work-life balance in general, right? About, yeah. Yeah, just any considerations, whether it's proactively telling a partner, you know, I'm sorry, I, I just have other stuff going on this weekend. I will try to get to it. Or perhaps um, the opposite, where you're like, you know what, I am willing to take on more work. Like the kind of considerations you might be uh, contemplating. Yeah, I, when I was in law school, I mean, one thing I said earlier, I didn't really know what the heck I was doing half the time, but I... <laughs> I did know that I did not want to work for a huge firm because I knew that I, I did not want to be in a position where I, my whole life was going to be my job. And um, so that was a conscious decision I made knowing I wanted to have more balance. That said, I, I mean, I, I, my firm is great and I, I think my work-life balance is okay. I think it's a huge challenge for all of us though. I don't really have any like magic bullets, you know, but I think and I think a huge challenge is, especially as a younger associate, a more junior associate, you it's really, really hard to say no to things and to set boundaries. And if a partner asks you to do something, it's really hard to say, sorry, I, you know, I have a softball tournament on Saturday. I can't do that. So, you know, it, you got to really kind of read the room and read the, the partner and, you know, navigate it. But I think those are some of the hardest things we deal with. Um, but I think ultimately, ultimately, at the end of the day, you have to put your mental health <laughs> keep that a priority, stay healthy. Um, you don't wanna be working 22 hour days all the time. You, you can't sustain that. Personally, I try to keep my weekends as free as I can. Um, you know, there are some weekends that I work, but I try to have more weekends that I'm not working as much as I can. And, you know, 
try to set some little goals for myself. But I think that's a huge challenge for lawyers at all levels in the practice. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I think sometimes it becomes um, almost like a who needs this most urgently and <laughs> who seems the first to be pissed off. So we'll get to that first. Um, but otherwise, I think during COVID especially, I think normally once at least um, I think at smaller mid-sized places, once you leave work or after a certain hour, people know you're you know, probably asleep and <laughs> will not respond immediately. Um, and during COVID, it's harder because everyone's just constant or working really weird hours. Um, I don't tell anyone specifically when I'm off, but there, um, at least one time during the weekend, I'll give, try to give myself like a 24 hour period where I may respond or I, I will read emails, but unless it's crazy urgent, I'm not going to respond and that's just like a yeah little mental break and I'll get back to it but yeah that's that's I, that reminds me of a very good thing that I was told early on in my career and this goes both for clients as well as for partners that you're working with or senior people senior associates that you're working with do not respond the minute you see something because then you set up an expectation that every time you do that um that they think that you know if I'll send Pyle an email she'll get back to me within a few minutes I would love to be able to do that, but what if I'm at a birthday party? Well, not anymore, but you know, what if I'm at an event and I don't have the time to respond to that or to think about you know, a response and send it out to them? And then that will let them down a little bit. So don't set up an expectation, unless of course they say, I've got a meeting in an hour. Can you really help me get this? Obviously, I mean, there's a time limitation to that. Um, but don't, don't you know, make a habit of yourself. I know everybody wants to really you know, be on the ball and perform and be like, hey, I'm a team player. Look, I can help you whenever you need me. But you are also setting up expectations that you may not be able to meet down the line. So um, be careful about controlling you know, how quickly you respond to things um, just because you want to do it. Um, and also, sometimes you need some time to think about it. You know, My first response that I come up with may not be the actual response that's right or maybe not well thought out. Um, so just think about that when you start responding to emails at all on, you know, odd hours of the day. Yeah, it's, I don't want to pile on too much, but I agree. And I actually still, I purposely, if I get emails either from clients or partners or whomever after like seven or eight o'clock at night, even if I'm reading it on my phone, I typically will not respond until the next day. I like to try to respond during business hours because I, especially clients, um, I don't want to set up the expectation that they can text me at all hours and I'll get back to them right away. Um, so I think that's really good advice. All righty. Well, that's awesome. That's good to know because I likewise face similar problems when it comes to <laughs> uh, the folks, uh, business stakeholders. So let's at this point then, I guess, move to some various, uh, various questions and Q and A's that I think we're good to be addressed now. I think one of the first ones is what would you recommend that a junior associate do every month to move their career forward? I think that just even giving some thought to a, to a business development task is like a good goal because I really don't think a lot of junior associates are focused on that. I mean, I haven't been a junior associate for a, for a while, but you're so focused on just getting through the day, getting your billable hours met, making sure you're meeting everyone's expectations that you're, you're not, super focused on the business development. So I think don't don't set yourself up for failure. I think to start out, like, you know, focus on doing one or two things a month that are related to business development. It could be connecting with someone on LinkedIn, reaching out, writing an article, um, you know, um, attending uh, an event at a bar association or joining a committee or joining a, a section council, something. Um, it's really about just starting to plant the seeds. Don't put too much pressure on yourself, but don't completely forget about it either. For me, one thing that has helped a lot, and you know, it's it's an actionable goal for me every month. Um, as a, an associate, I, junior associate, I did this once a month, but now, from you know, fifth, sixth year onwards, I switched it to once a week, which was to have coffee or lunch or after work drinks once a month with somebody, and it's somebody that I want in the long term to build a working relationship. 
whether it's another associate or another firm that has the same practice area, because look, you both are gonna go up in your careers at the same time. So let's start building these relationships ahead of time and not just work relationships, but friend relationship, right? So every once a month, set up a coffee with somebody in your own cohort around the same, you know, if you're a second year, some for second year, some third year, some first year, because even the, you know, even that first year, maybe five or six years down the line, he or she is going to go in-house. That's a good relationship to have, right? So do that once a month, set it up. It, it does not need now in COVID time, sure. Just set up a, you know, a COVID coffee day on, you know, and it's 15, 20 minutes at the most. People are so willing to do that now because all you have to do is just sit here and get yourself a coffee and, coffee and sit in front of your screen. No harm, no foul there, right? Um, so in terms of actionable items, do that. And as you get more senior, make it once every two weeks. Now I do this once every week and I have the same people repeatedly. I've got some people who I meet once a month for coffee and we schedule it every single month. And so if I've had it today, I will just move that calendar entry with my friend to the next month. And so we've already set it up. So that's very, very important because if you do one touch, that doesn't mean anything. But if you're constantly you know, having that connection with a lot of people, you are going to start building up this network you know, at, at a grassroots, grassroots level. So that's what I suggest you should do as junior associates. And Ash, do, uh, Ashley, would you have anything particular that you've done perhaps, or you would suggest folks uh, do that you look back on and wish you had been doing constantly? I feel like I'm still relatively in that junior phase too. So those were awesome, <laughs> really good <laughs> things. That I was like, oh, okay, noted. Um, but I, I, for my size, I think one thing um, Kate said, which also reminded me was, um, I guess prior to COVID, even now, I still, I actually have like actual phone number, cell phone numbers of um, associates in my office who are not on my team, but they do other work. But because um, we have a broad enough practice where, yeah, people do a lot of different stuff, but keeping in contact, because once in a while, they do have, you know, a real estate matter, something has to be drafted. And then, you know, then they can just text me or shoot me an email. Um, yeah, so I, I think I've been trying to, I mean, yeah, my goal is always once a month as well, but yeah. <laughs> maybe once a quarter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, don't take on too much, right? It's, it's uh, whatever you can do, so long as it's regular. And it keeps not just you in check, but it also reminds the other person that you are important enough for them to make the effort to reach out to them. And people love feeling important, right? If I reach out to somebody and say, hey, look, you know, let's have a coffee. I haven't caught up with you in forever. It feels good to them, especially now in COVID times because we're all so isolated. So what better, you know, way to connect with somebody and just say, hey, look, let's catch up. And you can catch up with, you know, even if it's a client a long time ago that you worked with, it is okay to say, let's catch up. Or maybe it's not the partner that you worked with um, or like the CEO that you worked with. Maybe you worked with a few of the more junior people on that group in-house you know, you guys are all going to grow together at the same time. So let's make those connections with the people at your level. Easy, to, easy, easier said than done, but I've been doing this for a long time. So, I mean, it comes more naturally, um, but it did not come naturally to me earlier. I hated networking. I hated talking to people, uh, new people. I, you know, it was awkward, but the more often you do it, it'll just become more natural. It doesn't mean I love it anymore, anymore now than I did earlier, but it's a lot easier to do it once you've done, you know, it's like anything else. You ride a bicycle the first time, it's really difficult and you fall. But then after that, you get the hang up and you're like, all right, maybe I don't like to bike to work, but at least I know how to do it, right? So. I think one perfect timing is also, always also like New Year's holidays. If it's someone like you haven't <laughs> touched base with in a long time, this, you know, send, send the New Year, Happy New Year, you know, just thought of you or how are you yeah. doing? And that's like a very good and not, like it's, a, it's, you know, it's a greeting and you're not, they know you're not trying to get something out of them. Um, so that yeah. reminds me, start building up your contact list on Outlook. Anybody that you work with, anybody that you come across, anybody that reached out to you and said, hey, do you know somebody who does blah, blah, blah? Start putting them in your contact list in Outlook. Because when it comes to holiday cards, it's wonderful to receive a holiday card from the actual person that you work with. And 
that's another way, like Ashley said, to make that networking connection, the touch, right? Um, and second, when you leave the firm, if you're in an, any firm like a big firm or mid-sized firm, the only thing you're taking with you is your purse or your bag or your, you know, your briefcase and your Outlook contacts. You're not taking anything else, if that. So build that up because, you know, who I worked with 10 years ago in the other law firm, I'm not going to remember, but I still have my Outlook contacts. Um, make sure when you're leaving, you confirm with the HR that it's okay to take it. Um, but other than that, like start building up these contacts now and putting them in your, it used to be what, what was it called? That Rolodex, but I guess everybody has Outlook now. Uh, uh, that's a very important thing to start doing as a junior associate because you're going to so, work on a lot of matters. And to build off what you uh, build off about keeping in touch with folks, but also specifically, Kate, when you were talking about as a junior associate, keeping in mind business development, what would you say to folks then who are still junior associates and how should they navigate potentially being reached out to by prospective clients? So I think this depends on your firm. So if you're, you know, first, second, third year, whatever, a lawyer, and you have a friend who, you know, needs a lawyer, you know, they something. Um, I think you look really, really great to your firm if you say, okay, you know, my firm does that work and approach a partner at your firm who you think would be a good match and say, you know, I want to try to bring in this client. I think that looks, I think it's, it's a win-win, um, you know, if it's not your area of practice or if you don't feel comfortable, if it's a close friend, you don't want to represent them, um, you know, you can um, pawn it off on somebody else. But that's how law firms work. We all thrive on cross-referring cross matters and bringing in business. So I think if you are in a position to potentially bring in a piece of work, then you should 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 do what you need to do to, to try to do that. And even if it doesn't work out, I think it looks great to the partnership that you're trying to to make that you're thinking about it, you're thinking about the firm. So definitely don't shy away from those opportunities. And don't feel bad if the firm says, no, sorry, we can't take it because there's more than what you know that goes into that decision. It's Good not point. just how much money you it may bring in, but also might be maybe if you take this small matter, it'll conflict you out of something big that's coming down the line. So don't feel bad when they say no. And in all likelihood, the things that you're gonna be bringing in very early on your career, are gonna be small matters. So you may bring in like, not bring in, but like bring to the partnership four or five small matters and they all get rejected for, you know, for some reason or the other. That doesn't mean that they don't like the things that you're bringing in, it's just for some other reason they can't take the case. So don't feel like discouraged, right? You're only helping yourself in the long run by bringing as many matters as possible that you get referred to to the partnership. Um, you know, and again, like uh, Kate said, it's you're building up a lot of good good juju with the partners goodwill and, yeah yeah oh, good goodwill good juju whatever you want yeah. to call it, right um uh, they, they see you as a team player not just in the actual work that you're doing but in growing the business and that's that, i mean there that is so valuable i cannot tell you how valuable that is can i say one thing that is totally off topic but i was looking kind of at my notes from before this and i did not bring up i just want to mention pro bono work as an opportunity for young lawyers to really get um, good, um, develop their skills um, in court, um, if you're a litigator, in client relations. If you're at a firm that supports pro bono efforts, my, fortunately I'm at a place, our firm is really supportive of lawyers doing pro bono work, but don't shy away from those opportunities either. Those can be, they're, they're just really valuable all around. So just throwing that out there, something to think about. No, that's perfect. And if anything, I think we're, as we're drawing to the top of the hour, um, we can take that as one of the takeaways from Kate. But um, if Ash and Payal, if you have any other last thoughts, takeaways that you would suggest uh, uh, junior associates or even people further down in their careers to keep in mind to be more proactive about their career development. Consistency. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think I would say consistency, whether it's having a copy, whatever that thing, you know, or building up your Outlook um, contact list be consistent about it because doing something once is not going to get you anywhere. If you're building up, um, you know, want to build up deposition skills, take multiple depositions. Whatever you do, practice makes perfect, right? So just remember that and keep doing the same thing and it's going to pay off at the end. It may, you know, I can't tell you when it's going to pay off, but it will. How about you, Ash? Nothing to add. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
thank you all, to all three of you, the panelists, for joining us today. If anyone in the audience has any more further questions, perhaps more specific to anything they've heard today, um, I believe the uh, uh, contact information, you can find these folks on their firm uh, websites. You can search them by name, you'll be able to find them. I imagine they'll be more than happy to continue talking about these topics. Um, Everybody connect on LinkedIn with me because that way I can connect back with you. And then that way, you, when you do something, I can like it and you know spread it to my network. I know it's lame, but it works. <laughs> Reach out. There you go. Actively already, actively already doing it. It's perfect. Awesome. <laughs> All, right, All right. Thank y'all. Um, have a great thank weekend. You. Thank, thank you. you. Bye. Bye.